obviously, the equinox being the 20th of March, and then we have a new moon only three days later on the 23rd, or the, actually the night of the 22nd, I guess, 23rd being New Year's Day. And then Passover coming up Wednesday evening, the 4th of, uh, of April, only 14 days after that. So it's bearing down upon us very rapidly. I think it's interesting that according to the way we are looking at the calendar, Passover is on a Wednesday evening, the midst of the week this year. That happens sometimes, and I always kind of look forward to it since that was the time that Christ was sacrificed. And it could have some portent in the future. We don't know for sure. All right, let's get into the sermon. (coughs) This part might come in the form of an announcement, but I'd like to put it on the tape anyway uh, before I get into the meat of where we're going today. But I wanted to, since we just got past Purim and I did not give any particular comments beforehand uh, of how important that time is. And it might be easy for us to not take it uh, that seriously since it isn't listed among the commanded feast days uh, of God. Neither are the fasts that we keep that are in Zechariah, but there it is very strongly implied that we would be keeping them. There's something that came along in the history of Israel that had great portent, great meaning for them at that time. So they began to keep fasts uh, for deliverance and always to keep it afterward as a remembrance. And certainly the conditions that existed at the time that those fast picture exist again today. So, taking the implication, which is a very strong one there in Zechariah, we started keeping those. I want to refer us for a moment to 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16. This we know probably quite well, but let's consider it in the light of the subject of Purim. It said, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. In other words, nothing that God saw fit to have canonized to be included in the Scripture is there by mistake. It is not there by time and chance, happenstance. It didn't get put in by mistake in any form or fashion. Everything that is there was given by inspiration of Almighty God. His direct inspiration. So, nothing was to be added, nor nothing taken away, as Revelation 22 tells us. It is all put there and inspired of God Himself. So, if it shows in the Scripture, it was meant to be Scripture. If it's something that we think is highly important that is not included in Scripture, then God didn't intend it to be. There are two or three books that are mentioned in Scripture or four, whatever it is, the book of Jasher, the book of Enoch, and so on, which might have some important information in them, and yet God did not choose to cause them to be put in the canon of the Bible. So they are not Scripture, even though they may 
hold a great deal of truth. But the book of Esther is included by inspiration of God. So if we take that point, we should find something in there that would be of great value, otherwise God would not have inspired it. Is it just a nice story about a girl who was found in favor of the king, and just by happenstance the Jews were delivered? Do things work out that way for the Jews? Have they ever in history? Without some help from somewhere? No. All right, let's consider another thought. It is profitable for doctrine. All Scripture is profitable for doctrine. So even the book of Esther is profitable for teaching, for helping us understand God better, to understand God's way better, to understand His plan and His purpose better. So it is there as doctrine, as teaching. That makes it important. It is the teaching of God. It is there for reproof. To, in that sense, reprove us or correct our thinking in terms of something. Sometimes we have to look at Scripture and study it and meditate upon it, maybe pray about it, to understand what reproof or I could use the term correction in our lives, is needed. So there has to be some there, since it is included in Scripture. It is also there for correction. <clears throat> now, there is a difference in the King James between reproof and correction. Reproof is perhaps better stated as chiding us over something wrong, you reprove somebody, you're saying you do not agree with their conduct or their thinking, and it needs to be changed. Now, correction in <clears throat> the Greek here is more in terms of guidance as opposed to uh, reproof. So, the book there is for guidance as well. Guide who? To guide you and me. What can we learn from that book that could guide our lives and our thinking today? See what I mean? If you consider that book as inspired of God, then you have to consider these other points as well, and perhaps you have to find within it what God is trying to say to us. Some have objected to the book, saying, well, it doesn't even mention God's name in it. Do you think anybody else on this earth is going to deliver the Jews other than God? As much as they tend to be despised, and the prophecies Christ made about them being despised? I don't think so. I do believe God's hand had to be there, whether He is mentioned by name or not. And, one other factor to consider here, is that all books in the Bible, including the book of Esther, are there for instruction in righteousness. Now, we are told that we are to become righteous. 
I'm not going to go into all the ramifications of righteousness. But that book, along with all the others, was put there to instruct you and me in true righteousness. Now, that makes it pretty important. If it's in Scripture, and it includes those four elements that Timothy mentions, or Paul mentions to Timothy, then it has to be a very, very important part of the very most important book on the face of the earth. So when you take that kind of perspective toward a part of God's work that might be uh, relegated to less important, let's say, than some of the others, taken a bit lightly, or ignored. You are taking liberties or presumption with the Word of God that the Revelation 22 clearly tells us not to do. So we need to consider that very important. And the instruction that is there, I think, very clearly can be tied to the church. You know, Christ is the chief cornerstone of the church. And I believe that Cyrus there is the ultimate type, or not the ultimate, uh, Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of Cyrus back then and today as well. And it wasn't written for them that day. They had already been delivered. They were already rejoicing and then fasting as well over the deliverance that had been given. So it must have been written for future generations. Uh, obviously, when Paul wrote Timothy, he was including it in Scripture, and it was written for that generation. And right now, if God's church, the spiritual Jews, ever needed deliverance, it would be today. The church has been decimated, essentially destroyed and scattered, and the results of that, the spiritual famine and pestilence and disease and war that has killed so many of an opportunity for spiritual salvation in the first resurrection. We are in a devastating time, and we need to realize that. So if that book ever had meaning... It has meaning today because we need deliverance worse than anyone ever has. The last degenerate, ungodly generation on earth has had us captured in its clutches. And though we are in the process of escaping that to some degree, not only is it a spiritual danger we face, but very shortly now, the church of God is going to be facing physical death, where 90%, roughly, of the church is going to die in the coming tribulation just a few years from now. There are many events that have to occur before the actual formal tribulation. <clears throat> it's just going to get worse and worse. So on both a spiritual and a physical level, Spiritual Israel needs preserved and delivered 
And God is not going to deliver physical Israel or 90% of the church on a physical level before Christ returns. Most of Israel physically and most of the church will also die. 90% will die in martyrdom. Only the 10% remnant who come to build the temple and finish the work of God will survive. Now, to me, that puts it on a pretty serious plane of what we need. So when you have a book back there of a young lady, typical of a church, and the virgins of Israel, the churches, the congregations here at the end time, are certainly listed in the various prophecies. And though we came from the rock, Christ, there are many prophecies that indicate that we are to give birth to Christ as well. Esther found favor and she gave birth to Cyrus, who then delivered Israel and later on caused them to be able to go back and build the temple. Now we are in that same circumstance where Christ the ultimate deliverer has to do it, And he is again going to use a Gentile to help the process. Lest we get, I guess, spiritually proud ourselves for what we can do. And he can show us what he can do for us through someone else, just as he did back then. So before we diminish it or blow it off or or not take it seriously, let's consider some of these things. And perhaps it needs to be addressed next year ahead of time, and some of these things, among others, might be added to it as well. But I wanted to make those comments uh, so that we might consider uh, what we miss if we miss out on an opportunity to follow, to observe, to incorporate into our lives something that has such rich meaning in the past and will have again in the future as we pray for and seek deliverance. You know, most are going to go into the tribulation in the church, and there they will pray for deliverance, but it will be too late. And not having sacrificed and grown spiritually during this time when we still can seek God while He may be found, they will begin to turn when it's too late and He cannot be found, and they will have to die for it. So, it is incumbent upon us to be doing what we need to be doing today so that we might be, excuse me, considered worthy to escape what is about to come. All right, with that, let's get back to the book of Psalms. We were at the end of verse 17 of chapter 68, and we will find today, as we go on through, uh, as we near Passover, this is very timely because there is much in this second book of the Psalms about Christ and what he went through, the things that David went through in trying to follow Christ. But he, Christ even said that the things written here were prophecies of him, and some of them are exact, specific events that occurred. We'll find some of those in chapter 69. So this is a very timely thing for this material that we be considering at this time as we bear down upon Passover itself. 
Uh, it doesn't hurt to start examining ourselves and thinking along these lines now. You might recall I gave a sermon, I think it was last year, time goes by so quickly, but I did an examination of the first day of the first month and the beginning of months in that sermon, and I think it was fairly easy to reach a conclusion that the examine yourself before Passover time is a formal examination period that begins on New Year's Day, Passover being 14 days later. So we can begin thinking about it, getting our minds, our thoughts in tow and under control, but the real deep penetrating examination needs to come just prior to Passover, and it does appear that the first day of the first month is a time of examination, of checking the status of things, uh, as we saw in that sermon. I won't go back through it all. But, you know, you can't just do deep examination or deep cleaning every day. Uh, you can look, and we do it all, I think, probably, uh, consider our attitudes and our thoughts day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute, and even second by second, uh, as things might enter our minds that shouldn't be there, and we have to become aware of it and expunge it from our thinking. <clears throat> but that formal time to really deeply consider begins on the first, on New Year's Day. Anyway, picking up in verse 18 then of, of Psalm 68, you have ascended on high, obviously speaking of Christ, because Paul made it very clear that no one has ascended except he which came down. So this is a direct reference to Christ right here. You have led captivity captive. Now we, mankind, since Adam and Eve, have been under the captivity or the influence, captivating our thoughts, our emotions, our feelings, our approach to life, all through man's history. And we face that same difficulty because he's still around to influence us. But he took that captivity of man that Adam and Eve succumbed to and which we all have since and led it into captivity. He took it, if you will, if you will the bull by the horns and controlled it completely. Did not go into that same captivity that everyone else has and took or put that in jail or in captivity or whatever you will in terms of his mind and his life. You have received gifts for men. Now, God is a result, or the Father is a result of his Son's obedience mm -hmm. and his acceptance of mankind's sins upon his back caused him to reascend to heaven where he sits at the right hand of the Father today. And he has given him great gifts that he will, in time, shower upon men. When he sets up, specifically, a thousand-year millennium of peace and gives great gifts and opportunities, spiritual and physical gifts both, to mankind. And we, as forerunners of that, have been promised those same gifts, blessings, and opportunities at the time God sees fit to forgive all our sins in one day and remove them as a cloud. 
We have scriptures to that effect. <clears throat> yes, for the rebellious also. Now, is God going to cause Christ to give gifts to the rebellious? Well, yes, in due course. Those who had rebelled, but by time and chance, or by God's direction in some cases, have lived through the tribulation and the seven last plagues and all that is to come, will repent and be humble and be given gifts of God in the world tomorrow. And all those rebellious who were in the great white throne judgment, when they're resurrected, will also, as they repent and remove their rebellion, be given the gifts of God. So he's talking about the whole plan of salvation here when he makes these comments. <clears throat> For the rebellious also, that the eternal God might dwell among them. So that gives you clarity right there as to the time this is talking about. Because Christ will not come and dwell on this earth with mankind until he returns in glory to stay. He will be with us in spirit through this end time. I don't know whether he will visibly manifest himself at all or not. It says he will come and dwell with us there in Zechariah 2, speaking of the end time church and the two witnesses. But it may not be that it is a visible presence, but his presence will certainly be there. Blessed be the Eternal, who daily loads us with benefits, even the God of our salvation. Think about that. You know, you, when you get a job in this society, you want to see what the list of bennies is. What are my benefits? Pensions, health care, uh, you know, bonuses, whatever. We, we always want to know what the bennies are. Well, the Bible is full of the benefits of God. The benefits of His Spirit that produces the fruit of the Spirit, all things that all people would like to have. All people would like to have love and joy and peace and patience, long-suffering, joy. All those gifts of God's Spirit, we would like to have those. We just don't like the process we have to go through to obtain them. That's what we don't like. We want to live selfishly. We want to have our way and do our own thing and yet have the benefit package with it. Does that work even on earth? <clears throat> you might want the benefit package at work, but if you do things your way and you're going in an opposite direction of management all the time and your attitude stinks toward other people and toward the job you're doing, and you don't do it well, how long will you keep the benefit package? F-I-R-E-D is the word. Because you didn't live up to your side of the deal, so the benefits are removed, including the paycheck. It is not so different, spiritually speaking. God has shown us the way that we should think and live, and he says if you do this, you'll get the benefit package. And it is quite an extensive package. It includes not just Social Security until you die. It includes long-time benefits, like eternally. Uh, health that will never, ever be impaired or go away. For you always feel good. And you never feel old. 
or like you are deteriorating or going over the hill and through the woods or wherever we're headed as human beings or under the ground. No enemies, no wants, no needs, total security. Wow. There's a whole lot to say for accepting God's way. Even the God of our salvation. So he says, stop and think about that. Selah. He that is our God is the God of salvation. No other God is. Buddha isn't. Uh, what's his name, the Islamic God? I can't, can't even say it. Uh, isn't. None of them are. Only the Creator God, who is our Father in heaven. He is the God of our salvation. And unto God the eternal belong the issues from death. He controls life or death. But God shall wound the head of his enemies and the hairy scalp of such an one as goes on still in his trespasses. We have to do it God's way or we will have our head skinned, if you will, or wound the head of his enemies. The Eternal said, I will bring again from Bashan, I will bring my people again from the depths of the sea. So if we need a deliverance in the Red Sea, at the Jordan, at uh, the court of Esther and Cyrus, we need deliverance again. And it is to come. That your foot may be dipped in the blood of your enemies and the tongue of your dogs in the same. So, if we serve God, we will live. Our enemies will die around us. And we will see, as we walk on the face of the earth, our feet dipped in the blood of those who died, who would not get past their trespasses against God. And our dogs will lick their blood. Pretty stark assessment of the situation. They have seen your goings, O God, even the goings of my God, my King, in the sanctuary. The singers went before, the players on instruments followed after them. Among them were the damsels playing with timbrels. Bless you, God, in the congregations, even the eternal from the fountain of Israel. Now these last three verses are in the context of the enemies dying around us and God delivering His people here at the end, His end-time faithful virgin daughter. The one that He chooses to finish the work of God here in the end time. See, the world is going to see the things that God does. They will be undeniable to a whole world who is seeking after Man and Satan's rule and the beast and false prophet. But they will see a small area where God is showing his blessing and the things that he does. None of us have seen those things yet except on a very small and personal scale. What we have done in this little village could be done by anyone, as I've said many times. Maybe they wouldn't have done it where we did it, because I do believe God's direction was in it. 
So there are ramifications there to be considered. But from someone as an outside observer to this point, they don't know what I know and you know. So to them, it would not appear to be that God had his hand in it. It was just what we did. I see God's hand in it. All God's people should see his hand in their lives. So we don't have to be spiritually proud to see God working in our lives. He'd better be. And if he's not, we'd better be sure we find out how to make it happen. Whatever group we might be in. But the world is going to see the things that God does that are promised and all the prophecies that we have gone through and that we do understand now. Even the goings of my God in the sanctuary, he is going to establish his sanctuary here by the end-time latter temple that is yet to be built. And he says there in the book of Zechariah, They'll be singing and dancing and the kids playing in the streets and damsels playing with timbrels, as it puts it here. Bless you, God, in the congregations, even the eternal from the fountain of Israel. Now, fountain of Israel here could take several different uh, meanings. Christ, of course, is the living waters. So he is the fountain from what all spiritual good comes from. But there are physical types as well. And the area that I do believe was the site of the original Jerusalem, not in the Middle East, but in the promised land where Ephraim and Ormanasseh, depending on your viewpoint, now reside, and where he said we would dwell in the end time, that it would be in the promised land. And we're not over there, we're here. Okay? The place that I think is... The original site of Jerusalem has a spring coming right out beneath the mount. The hill of Jerusalem, the mountain of God. So there you have a physical thing that fits as well. And interestingly enough, we've learned in the last year that Zion itself has the Virgin River coming right out of the rock. A full-blown river coming right out of a hole in the rock. And if that isn't symbolic of the Virgin of God coming out from the rock, Christ, I don't know what is. And you won't find many places, if any, on the face of the earth where a river begins quite in the same fashion that one does. It is... Amazing to see when you understand the implications of the true Zion. So when he says that the congregation will be blessed from the fountain of Israel, it's from Christ in the place that was the originally designated Garden of Eden and the headquarters of God on earth where he will come to dwell in the land walked by Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and promised to their seed forever, and the end-time generation, he said, would be living there. Now, where are the end-time generations of Isaac and Jacob living today? It's not in the Middle East. 
Verse 27, there is little Benjamin with their ruler, the princes of Judah, and their council, the princes of Zebulun and the princes of Naphtali. Once you understand that this country is far more likely to be Ephraim than is Britain, uh, would it not be a great surprise to find that Benjamin might be to the north, right next to Ephraim? Little Benjamin, right here near the fountain of Israel. And Judah is scattered among the tribes, but there are more Jews in America than there are anywhere else on earth. Amazingly. I say amazingly, but not if you consider these scriptures. The princes of Zebulun and the princes of Naphtali. I don't know exactly where I would put that in this particular uh, analogy, as they may be in Western Europe, but uh, there may be some elements of them here as well. Who knows? Near the fountain of Israel. And this is the area that God has blessed with His Word, is it not? Where the former temple under Herbert Armstrong was formed. So, it wasn't in the Middle East, the fountain of Israel, where whence the word of Christ came, is in America. It's the only place that the real truth of God has ever been proclaimed from in the end time. Well, I mean, it's been preached around the world now, but it was at the ages of that organization that came from here and under its direction, and it all came out from here and then spread around the earth. So this is the source, or the fountain, or the spring, right here. Your God has commanded your strength. Strengthen, O God, that which you have worked for us. <clears throat> kind of an interesting way of putting that. God has commanded our strength, and what is to come. He told us to be of good courage, to be strong, to work. So it comes from Him. But then it says, Strengthen, O God, that which you have worked for us. So he says it comes from God, but then you find yourself not as strong as you would want to be. And then he says, Please give that strength, that which you promised, that which you said would be, and yet which we find today still has not been given in power. It's kind of like when the early New Testament church started. The disciples were there. They had been trained by Christ. They just didn't have the power. They didn't have the Spirit of God moving through them. So they sat there, unconverted, unable to do anything until the day of Pentecost. And then the work began in earnest and rapidly progressed. So God has given us truth, knowledge, understanding, opportunity, which lies ahead, but he has yet to show his goings, as I put it a few verses up, or his power. And when he does, it will captivate the attention of a remnant of his church. Because, let's see, because of your temple at Jerusalem shall kings bring presents to you. Now, that's ultimately referring to the Father and the Son dwelling on the earth in the original Jerusalem, the holy city that comes down uh, at the beginning of the millennium. But it also has 
a smaller fulfillment in his end-time church who will build the temple at the true Jerusalem and presence will be brought by a few. And a larger fulfillment, the whole earth will bring presence to Christ when he is here permanently. Rebuke the company of spearmen, the multitude of the bulls, with the calves of the people, till everyone submit himself with pieces of silver. So God is going to bring tragedy and hurt and death, misery, upon this earth until people are humbled and they're ready to bring their pieces of silver to God. God will cause people to tithe. He has said so in the Old Testament. He has said so in the New Testament. And sooner or later, if people's knees do not bend and they do not bring their pieces of silver to God, they will have their knees broken and they will die. That is Scripture. Princes shall come out of Egypt. Ethiopia shall soon stretch out her hands to God. Zechariah says it won't come easy, apparently, for Mitzrayim or Egypt. It says they don't come to the feast, they'll get no rain. So, it'll take some doing before they are truly humbled. But here we have a prophecy that it will happen. You know, how long do you not get rain before you begin to say, where's the feast? There'll be a point. Sing to God, you kingdoms of the earth. Oh, sing praises to the eternal. Think about that. Earth, these things are in the offing. These are prophecies. To him that rides upon the heavens, heavens of heavens, which were of old. Lo, he does send out his voice, and that a mighty voice. Revelation describes him as having a voice of thunder. We have not heard that voice yet in the world. He did not come with that voice the first time he came to this earth. He came quietly as a teacher, mainly as an example, and a teacher of his own disciples primarily. And that he did rather quietly. And in fact, when they got kind of uppity, he called them in one case, sons of thunder. That's not what he came to do. But he made a thunderous impact by living the first perfect life. And when he comes back, it will be riding from the heavens of the heavens with a mighty voice. Ascribe you strength to God. His excellency is over Israel and his strength is in the clouds. When he returns and shows his power, we'll see him coming in the clouds. O God, you are terrible out of your holy places. Awesome would be a better word. The God of Israel is he that gives strength and power to his people. So this is the God we're dealing with. The God that can thunder in the heavens. And he has called us, pathetic and pitiful though we may be, and he is going to give us strength and power to do the job that is to be done. Now, 69 deals specifically with some of the things that occurred with Christ. Save me, O God, for the waters are come into my soul. It wasn't physical waters he was facing, but that which would drown spiritually his soul, which could have destroyed him, to drown his spiritual life 
had he sinned. And he recognized that possibility, that capacity within himself. And he did not want his purpose for being on this earth to be drowned out by sin, by the world around him, or from Satan. So he went through a great deal of agony. Again, he recognized that within him was that capacity to sin. The temptation to sin was there. If that had not been the case, why would he even make statements like this? Save me, O God. Why would he have cried out just before he was crucified and gone out and sweat blood in prayer and chided his disciples for not being able to even pray with him for an hour but go to sleep instead? He was under a great deal of pressure. I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I am come into deep waters where the floods overflow me. He realized the danger of where he was and what was at stake and what could happen if he gave in. I am weary of my crying. He cried out over and over. You know, the only way that Christ kept his life straight and never sinned was that he cried out to his Father in heaven continually. And he was tired of the battle. He was tired of fighting it. Even as we can become weary in well-doing or weary in seeking God, it's human, it's natural, it's normal. And he was weary and tired of crying and crying out. My throat is dried, my eyes fail while I wait for my God. He knew what was coming upon him. He knew it, had, it was inevitable that he would have to die, that he would have to suffer the torture that he would go through. And it was not easy. It was very difficult. And it tried his patience. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. We've experienced these emotions. He did as well. He's our high priest. He is our intercessor, our mediator today. And he full well understands how hard it is to be patient and to wait, trusting God. When life becomes difficult, tedious, it gets old and wearying trying to do what we are trying to do. They that hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. They that would destroy me, being my enemies wrongfully, are mighty. Then I restored that which I took not away. He didn't steal anything. But he was facing not only those enemies around him, but those enemies which have come even since. Because his sacrifice and his life is a continual thing laid out there for us. So he still has enemies, doesn't he? Most of the people on this earth hate the true Father and Christ if they come in contact with them at all. There is an automatic dismissal of God's truth. There is an automatic, uh, what's the word? Uh, I guess I am getting old. Uh, aversion 
to God. It's just, it's just within, within people. We are deceitful and desperately wicked by nature, and when we come into the contact with God and His way, we just don't like it. Now, to many people, the thought of God or of Christ is not something that puts them off, but it's the way of God that puts them off. They don't want His commandments, His judgments, His statutes, His way of life. They want to bask in the what they call the love of God without living His way. Human mind does not like the way of God. Now, He's having to restore forgiveness and mercy and love. He didn't take them away. But he's the one who had to come and live a perfect life so that they might be restored. And that life might be a possibility again. Eternal life for us. Oh God, you know my foolishness and my sins are not hid from you. Well, is that speaking of Christ? Well, David wrote it and certainly he had his own sins. But Christ had the sins of the world heaped upon his back prior to the time he was here and since. So it became his sin. He is the one who had to die for it. Those weren't hid from God, and he felt the crushing weight of the sin of mankind just before he died. And he cried out, why have you forsaken me? God did truly forsake him. He was on his own. Why did he cry that out if it was not the case? People try to spiritualize these things away. Now, if Christ said, why have you forsaken me, then God had forsaken him, right? He didn't lie. His father forsook him at that moment because of my sins and yours. And he had to take it upon himself and die for those sins. Not his, not that which he took away, but what we took away. Now, he tells us he will never leave or forsake us. He will always be there if we will respond to him. He will not leave us alone unless we put him out of our lives. But we should invite him into our lives, as the disciples did when he was walking by their boat. Let's see, where was I here? Um, verse 6, Let not them that wait on you, O eternal God of hosts, be ashamed for my sake. Let not those that seek you be confounded for my sake, O God of Israel. So he said, let me finish the job you've given me to do. Let me finish my perfect life. Give me the strength and the power to do it, so that those who might come to trust in you in the future will have hope. They'll have something to look to. He understood the price. Because for your sake I have borne reproach, shame has covered my face. I am become a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's children. He was different than they were. Just as we 
once we begin to walk God's way of life, are alienated from our unconverted families. It just happens, and Christ told us it would happen. For the zeal of your house has eaten me up. His zeal of seeking to serve the Father's house had just about eaten him up. It was all he could do to go against the people around him, his family around him, and do perfectly, correctly everything he did in spite of everything that was around him. So serving God is going to create enemies, isn't it? And the reproaches of them that reproach you are fallen upon me. So he says, it's not you they hate now, it's me. They transferred the hate for God in heaven to his back because he was there before them. When I wept and chastened my soul with fasting, that was to my reproach. He had to fast to stay close to God. I made sackcloth also my garment, and I became a proverb to them. So, he was God in the flesh, had come down from his Father's throne, and yet he had to become, or be, at all times, humble and meek, not proud, not full of vanity and ego and self, but sackcloth just became what he wore. Now, he didn't wear physical sackcloth at all times, but sackcloth in Bible parlance means humility. And he had to, at all times, be humble and meek. And he had become a proverb to them. And they looked upon him as weak, too. They that sit in the gate speak against me. So that would be the elders referred to there, the, the high and mighty in the, uh, the city or around. The ones that sat in the gate and made judgments spoke against him. So it was the leaders, and I was the song of the drunkards. So even the low of society made jesting, laughing, sarcastic songs about him. So all through society, it says, he was ridiculed. But as for me, no matter what they were doing, as for me, my prayer is to you, O Eternal, in an acceptable time. O God, in the multitude of your mercy, hear me in the truth of your salvation. It was difficult having enemies from the top to the bottom of society. So he turned to God. Deliver me out of the mire and let me not sink. Let me be delivered from them that hate me and out of the deep waters. Let not the water flood overflow me, neither let the deep swallow me up, and let not the pit shut her mouth upon me. Don't let me sin. Don't let me go down into the depths of the grave and have the pit close over me. His spirituality drowned out and washed down into the earth. He didn't want that to happen. But he recognized the danger, and therefore he prayed this kind of prayer. Maybe we should have put this off until Passover is here, but boy, is this ever good to help us get in the right mood and attitude and approach before the Passover comes? Can't think of a better part of Scripture to be going through right now. Verse 16, Hear me, O Eternal, for your loving kindness is good. Turn to me according to the multitude of your tender mercies, and hide not your face from your servant, 
for I am in trouble. Hear me speedily. Christ was in trouble. He had Satan tempting him. He had his own aversion to torture and death affecting him. He had to stay close to God. Draw near to my soul and redeem it. Deliver me because of my enemies. You have known my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My adversaries are all before you. Reproach has broken my heart and I am full of heaviness. And I looked for some to take pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. Even his own disciples turned and ran. Betrayed him and ran from him. And said, I don't even know him. Those that he had been closest to rejected it. They gave me also gall for my meat, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. If there was any doubt in your mind who this is speaking of, that ought to cinch it right there. That's exactly what they did when he hung there. Let their table become a snare before them, and that which should have been for their welfare, let it become a trap. And that's a prophecy that's going to come true. It has been. The wicked are not going to survive the righteous will. Let their eyes be darkened that they see not, and make their loins continually to shake. Pour out your indignation upon them, and let your wrathful anger take hold of them. Now God has put that off until the end. That's why David could say, well, it looks like the wicked prosper around me. You know, I try to do right, and, and they have all the, the goodies. What's wrong with me? And I have enemies all around me. Well, Christ was in the same position. He was obeying God better than anybody ever had, and yet he had all kinds of enemies and detractors and people that hated him and spoke evil of him and made songs about him, deriding him. God's still holding off, isn't he? But before long now, it's going to break loose. Let their habitation be desolate and let none dwell in their tents, for they persecute him whom you have smitten. And they talk to the grief of those whom you have wounded. So they spit on him, they put him down, derided him in every way. Add iniquity unto their iniquity, and let them not come into your righteousness. You know, he was, he was struggling <coughs> to continue in his righteousness and to be uh, brought up to his father's throne, resurrected three days later. He did not want the wicked to go there. After all he had gone through? Now, if I am ever offered the opportunity to be in the kingdom of God, you know what? I don't want any wicked people there either. I don't. I don't want to be wicked, and I don't want anybody that is wicked there. Because I've lived around the wicked, and I've been wicked. And it's tiresome. And it's hard. And it brings frustration and grief and difficulties in life. No, Christ didn't want them there either. Now, he'd prefer they repent. He'd prefer that of all of us, so that we can be there and be righteous and add to the peace and love rather than detract from it. And that's the struggle we face right now today, to have true godly love for one another. And we fall so far short because... Most of the love we feel is our own human emotions and feelings for those that we like, or who are family or whatever. 
And it does not come natural to love those who we perceive to be our enemies or against us or talk about us or whatever they might do. Breathe. Maybe. No, he doesn't want anyone but the righteous there. And he says that right at the end of the book of Revelation. If anybody be in this category of lawbreakers, they will not be in your kingdom. So what he is saying here is echoed very loudly at the end of the book of Revelation and all in between. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not be written with the righteous. Paul spoke of the book of life, did he not? And that our names need to be in it. But it won't be there if we persist in sin. But I am poor and sorrowful. Let your salvation, O God, set me up on high. Because if I have the right attitude, and I do, then I know I'll be set on high. And he's calling on God to do that. I will praise the name of God with a song, and will magnify him with thanksgiving. And even what he was facing there, just having recited the vinegar and, and, uh, and gall, the thought was, praise be to God. This also shall please the eternal better than an ox or bullock that has horns and hooves. He's never been satisfied or particularly liked sacrificing bulls and goats for sin. But the sacrifice of his son was precious to him. And our sacrifice of our way of life and our thinking and sacrifice for one another is living sacrifice, as Romans 12.1, is sweet to him as well. The humble shall see this and be glad, and your heart shall live that seek God. So he says, they're going to see what I was and what I did, and then they will follow in my footsteps and walk as I walked, and be humble and meek and obedient as I have, and they, too, will praise God. That would be you and me, speaking of us. And all of those who have served God throughout history. For the Eternal hears the poor and despises not his prisoners. We have become slaves of Christ, of the Father, have we not? That's what he says. We're his prisoners. We have willingly accepted his way and become slaves to his way of life. We have no opportunity to do anything else. We do what we're told. We do what this word says. We have put ourselves in the position of someone who is told what to do. We have accepted his conditions. Therefore, we are prisoners of God. And yet we have trouble escaping the prison of Satan and human nature, don't we, in the culture around us. We become slaves to it, and in so doing, then, we are not honoring our slavery to God. Let the heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves therein. For God will save Zion and will build the cities of Judah. He says that Jerusalem is desolate many generations. The cities of Judah are desolate. And he gives us many places in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and the other prophecies, including now the book of Psalms, which shows that he will do this. That they may dwell there and have it in possession. The seed also of a servant shall inherit it, 
and they that love his name shall dwell therein. Let's go to chapter 70 then. Make haste, O God, to deliver me. Make haste to help me, O Eternal. So Christ wanted this thing to be done, to be over with. And how did he tell us to pray? Thy kingdom come. To always have at the forefront of our mind God's kingdom on earth because that gives us hope and help to do what we need to do to ensure that we be there. If you don't have a dream, if you don't have a hope, you're in trouble. So keep that hope ever in mind, even as he did. Let them be ashamed and confounded that seek after my soul. Let them be turned backward and put to confusion that desire my hurt. We are going to have a lot of people. Once God begins to show his doings, who are going to suddenly know us and hate us. And we will be hated of everyone on the face of the earth. That is in our near future. So get ready for it. And be prepared to know that the beast and the false prophet will know who we are. And Satan already knows who we are. And he will be coming after us with all the strength and might that he has. But if we draw near to God, he will flee from us. He can't stand righteousness. That's the one thing Satan cannot handle is righteousness. So if we are righteous, he will flee from us. We have that promise. Make him angry. But what is he going to do? Let them be turned back for a reward of their shame that say, Aha, aha, you idiots, you fools. And they will. Let all those that seek you rejoice and be glad in you. And let such as love your salvation say continually, Let God be magnified. That should always be on the tip of our tongue. Let God be magnified. Glory, honor, and praise to God. That should be our attitude and our approach in life. If you go through life with that approach, let God be magnified, enlarged before your eyes. You don't have time for negativity. You don't have time for um, judging, condemning others. Because you're going through life wanting to see God made larger before you and everyone else around you. To help them glorify God in their lives as you glorify Him in yours. There simply is no time for negativity. Not if we fulfill this. But I am poor and needy. Make haste to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. O Eternal, make no tarrying. Don't wait. Hurry. Thy kingdom come. We want it. We need it. Please bring it soon. But give us patience and long-suffering from your Spirit to be able to deal with this life and what it deals to us until that time comes. Chapter 71, In you, O Eternal, do I put my trust. Let Let me never be put to confusion. God is not the author of confusion. And we do not need to be in confusion. 
the church today is in confusion. It is only by knowledge and deliverance from God that we can avoid confusion. I hope we recognize, brethren, all of us here, who hear this, whether they be here in person or on the phone line or by tape or whatever later. I hope we recognize the incredible amount of knowledge and insight He's given us in His Word that most in the church still do not understand. They don't even know they're confused. But we have the keys and the knowledge not to be confused. Do we realize what an incredible blessing that is and give thanks to God and magnify Him for the knowledge He's given us? Now what do we do with it, see? We could get proud and self-righteous in that we understand certain things that maybe others have not yet come to see. But if we don't do something about it and come to live it, then it does no good. And in fact, it will condemn us to know and not do. God makes that very clear throughout Scripture. Don't let me be put to confusion. Help me understand and know where I'm headed, where I'm going, what I need to do to get there. Deliver me in your righteousness and cause me to escape. Incline your ear to me and save me. Isn't that echoed in Matthew 24 where Christ said, Pray that you be accounted worthy to escape all these things that are coming. Isn't it nice to be in a position to understand what he meant? And to understand this when we read it as well. Because this is a prophecy of what he said in Matthew 24. He's just repeating it in a little bit different words. Be you my strong habitation, whereunto I may continually resort, always going to God. You have given me, you have given commandment to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. That's echoed in the New Testament. He's the chief cornerstone. He's the rock. He's the fortress. And he will put us in a physical rock and fortress in Zion. So the spiritual and the physical go together in type and in actuality. He's given commandment to save us. That should be very, very encouraging. He wants us there. He said, save them to his son. You're their savior, save them. All right, Dad. He's working on it. That's his whole goal and purpose. Deliver me, O my God, out of the hand of the wicked, out of the hand of the unrighteous and cruel man. For you are my hope, O Lord God. You are my trust from my youth. But you have I been, by you have I been held up from the womb. You are he that took me out of my mother's bowels. My praise shall be continually of you. He was planted in Mary's body. So it went all the way back. We might be surprised to know someday how far back God began working with us as individuals in this end time as well. And some of us can recount things that happened in our lives way back before we ever knew the truth that pushed us, guided us, led us to be in the right mood and attitude and approach when it came to be able to accept it. So he worked with us way back before we even knew. 
My praise shall be continually of you. I am as a wonder to many, but you are my strong refuge. God's people here in the end, he says, will be uh, men of signs and wonders. Will be a wonder to many if we serve God. But he is the refuge that we look to. Let my mouth be filled with your praise and with your honor all the day. As I go through life, all day long, all the day, let me have this mindset and attitude of praise and thanksgiving to God. Cast me not off in the time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength fails. For my enemies speak against me, and they that lay wait for my soul take counsel together, saying, God has forsaken him. Persecute, take him, for there is none to deliver him. O God, be not far from me. O my God, make haste for my help. Let them be confounded and consume their adversaries to my soul. Let them be covered with reproach and dishonor that seek my hurt. But I will hope continually and will yet praise you more and more. There's the attitude to have. We have troubles, trials, difficulties like he did, like David did. And yet we praise him more and more knowing He's the God of creation who put everything here. Everything that you enjoy on this earth, God put here. My mouth shall show forth your righteousness and your salvation all the day, for I know not the numbers thereof. I will go in the strength of the eternal God. I will make mention of your righteousness, even of yours only. He's the only one that truly is righteous. O God, you have taught me from my youth, and hitherto have I declared your wondrous works. Now also, when I am old and gray-headed, O God, forsake me not. Now, Christ never lived himself to be old and gray-headed, but David did, and we do, in general. So he's including here. Now, I don't know how much he aged there in those last hours, days before he died. There's nothing that indicates he turned gray overnight. But then on the other hand, who knows? There have been people do that. I'm not suggesting that necessarily. I think that the Scripture itself indicates that it doesn't matter who we are, young or old, we come under the heading and the description of everything that he went through. So don't forsake me until I have showed your strength to this generation and your power to everyone that is to come. Now, his hair is white like wool today. So he reached full maturity and full age, maybe not on this earth, but what he went through down here caused him to have perfect spiritual maturity. He learned by the things he suffered, it says. He didn't know it all. He learned by the things he suffered. It wasn't just doctrine. It wasn't just teaching. He learned compassion. He learned deeper feeling. He learned what mankind literally goes through by virtue of the human nature which he had. He was human. And he had human nature. He controlled it perfectly, but he learned by the things he suffered.
Let's see. Forsake me not until I have showed your strength to this generation and your power to everyone that is to come. Now, David didn't do that, but Christ is. Now, David will be there as king in Israel, and as the generations come up, and the great white throne judgment and so on, he also will be. But it's a reference more directly to Christ, I think. Your righteousness also, O God, is very high. Who has done great things, O God? Who is like you? You, which have showed me great and sore troubles, shall quicken me again. He did not escape trial, trouble, tribulation, difficulty, enemies, problems that he had to solve in life. He faced those things just like we do. But he knew he would be resurrected. He'd be quickened again. And you shall bring me up again from the depths of the earth. Buried in the earth, and he came up three days later. You shall increase my greatness and comfort me on every side. And he was glorified after that. I will also praise you with the psaltery, even your truth, O my God. To you will I sing with a harp, O you holy one of Israel. That's why we sing as part of the Sabbath worship service to God. Yes, we talk, we expound God's word, but we sing praises to him every week. He likes that. My lips shall greatly rejoice when I sing to you, and my soul which you have redeemed. Doesn't it make you feel better to sing the hymns, to sing these psalms? Put them to music and sing them. It always gives me a lift when we have a song service. My tongue also shall talk of your righteousness all the day long, for they are confounded, for they are brought to you the shame that seek my hurt. Well, this second uh, book or section of the Psalms ends at the end of chapter 72. So, as a natural break, I think I'll go on here for a little bit and, and cover verse uh, chapter 72 because uh, it, it, the context of what we're going through today and what we've been talking about continues in, verse, in chapter 72. And then you have a, a change in thought in 73, so I'd, I'd like to finish this section. Give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. He shall judge your people with righteousness, and your poor with judgment. Many, many scriptures indicate that of Christ. The mountains shall bring peace to the people, and the little hills by righteousness. So, government of God, small and large, hills and mountains, will bring righteousness. He shall judge the poor of the people. He shall save the children of the needy, and shall break in pieces the oppressor. So, here again, future prophecy written from the standpoint of our human life and these things that Christ is going to do very shortly. So, we've been talking about all the trials, troubles, and distresses he went through. And now to finish this section, he's been beginning to project to the future what he was going to do from the time of his death and resurrection going through the end of this age. And he begins to talk about the millennium here and what his future plans are. So, his death and resurrection is not a done deal until he causes that righteousness to spread to all the earth. They shall fear you as long as the sun and moon endure throughout all generations. So, that has never happened. It is a prophecy of the future. He shall come down like rain upon the mown grass, as showers that water the earth. 
Christ is going to come as life-giving water. And the words that He speaks will bring life to the earth. And there will even have physical rivers of water coming out from the throne of the Father and the Son to heal the earth during the millennium. In His days shall the righteous flourish and abundance of peace so long as the moon endures. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river unto the ends of the earth. His promised land stretches from sea to shining sea. The original promised land. That does not happen in the Middle East. You have the Mediterranean Sea on one side, and you've got the Arabian Desert on the other side, and Israel does not have it. So that which he established originally goes from sea to shining sea. And the river there may be in reference to the Atlantic, which divides Israel today. The ancients often referred to the Atlantic as the river because of the currents that they used to sail across it. It's not always the Euphrates. And in fact, the Atlantic was referred to as the Euphrates in some cases. Uh, verse 9, They that dwell in the wilderness shall bow before him, and his enemies shall lick the dust. All future. The kings of Tarshish and of the island shall bring presents. The king of kings of Sheba and Seba shall offer gifts. Sheba means seven. Uh, the queen of Sheba was the queen of seven. Probably the seven cities of Sabola whence came many of the riches. I think we will be aware of that in the near future. Yea, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. For he shall deliver the needy when he cries, the poor also, and him that has no helper. This is a very wonderful psalm, isn't it? goes through all the trials, troubles, tribulations, difficulties, and frustrations that he faced as a human being, and death itself. And then it shows what he is going to do for the world as a result of that perfect life and that willingness to die for the sake of all mankind. God so loved the world, everyone in it, that he gave his only begotten Son, that they might not perish, but receive eternal life. And that's what he's talking about here. Won't it be nice when he will deliver the needy when they cry? We cry today and we don't get the kind of deliverance yet that we want, but it's promised us. That's what faith is all about. Hang on, do what we need to so that we might receive these promises. I want to be there when anyone who is needy cries out, and they get an immediate answer. Wouldn't that be wonderful? He'll save the soul of the needy. He shall redeem their soul from deceit and violence. We've been lied to. The kings of the earth have been violent against us. That's going to cease. America is about to go into another war. And then they're going to have war brought to them. Or us. It's about to happen. When this is all said and done, and these end-time finishes, end-time events are all done, He is going to save the whole world from future deceit and violence, and precious shall their blood be in His sight. He won't allow it to be shed anymore. And He shall live, and to Him shall be given of the gold of Sheba. 
prayer also shall be made for him continually, and daily shall he be priest, uh, praised. The queen of seven brought treasures to Solomon. It's going to happen again. This is a prophecy. The gold of Sheba. There shall be a handful of corn in the earth upon the top of the mountains. The fruit thereof shall shake like Lebanon, and they of the city shall flourish like grass of the earth. Right now he tells us to get out of the cities, go dwell in the wilderness, because that's where he will protect his people in the end time. But when these prophecies all come to pass, the whole earth, town and country, will be blessed. His name shall endure forever. His name shall be continued as long as the sun. And men shall be blessed in him. All nations shall call him blessed. <laughs> blessed be the eternal God, the God of Israel, who only does wondrous things. He's the only one who does wondrous things. You can have other gods. He's the only one that is going to do these things. Allah isn't and Buddha isn't. God is. And blessed be His glorious name forever. And let the whole earth be filled with His glory. Amen and Amen. So be it, so be it. With emphasis, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. So these were the prayers of David about his life and about the life of Christ to come. David being a type of Christ. And he will rule under Christ shortly. So that's the end of that section, and we'll stop there for today.